slightly. Can you hear yourself now? Is that... Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Hold it closer to your mouth. Hold it closer to your mouth. I don't know what it is. It's fine. I'm definitely coming through. Just just something's different. Boobity-doo. Ooh, that's louder. Was that better? Yeah. <sighs> Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? I feel like if I say that I'm doing good, you're just going to be really angry at me right now. Michael, I'm going to be angry no matter what. Not at you, just at God. Yeah, well, that's reasonable. What if God were one of us? I would punch her. Yeah. <laughs> how are you? Tell me how you are. You're not excused. I feel like the bell is ringing and I should be allowed to leave the classroom. <laughs> Ask not for whom the classroom bell rings, Michael. It rings for thee to tell you to tell me how you're doing. Well, I feel like a southern bell, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and by southern bell, I mean northern bell because a we are bell. sitting in an undisclosed location. <laughs> an undisclosed FBI black site on coastal Maine. We're sitting in these, what are we sitting in, Hava? I'd say armchairs, small armchairs. Is that what they're called? Or maybe a small reading chair? Yeah, they're like definitely waspy chairs yeah. of some variety. We're, we're armchair Talmudists. Yes, definitely. Behind us is a beautiful scene of a craggy ocean. Yes, it's quite beautiful. I was very happy until only moments ago. Oh yes, listeners, I... I wish you had experienced Hava right before her realization. <laughs> so we drove several hours to this undisclosed location next to the ocean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. only for me to realize once we got here that I left almost everything I packed at home. All my clothes, all my underwear, the various socks I was going to wear, mm -hmm. some really great books I was excited to read while I was here. Yeah. Just like every plan I had for myself. It's still Shavuot. It's going to be Shavuot tonight, and I'm going to trip mushrooms as part of that. And this is all part of it. So hopefully I deal with this in my psychedelic trip. I hope so, because I don't know if I could stand a grumpy Hava for a week. You know I'll cheer up, Michael. I know, I know, I know, but I'm impatient. I know. You're like, cheer up now. Get over your trauma in the same moment that it's happening. Yes, that's my style. Michael Sokolovsky, how dare you? Michael just set his margarita down on a table where a coaster was clearly available. Coasters are the most goyish thing ever invented. <laughs> I just do not respect them. They are <laughs> oppressive. I hear where you're coming from politically. And at the same time, we are in another person's home and they have nice wood furniture. I will not change the system from the inside <laughs> i will change it from the outside god damn it okay you let me know how that goes for you so yes i am grumpy i'm upset because i left my luggage at home mm -hmm. and yet still i'm here still i'm here to make gay talmudic content because you know the podcast life is all i know gays persevere yeah that's what they say mm -hmm. that's the number one thing about gays yeah anyway yeah it's been an interesting day i have nothing but good things to say <laughs> uh, okay so right of course right so we're sitting by this window we're in maine yes very very secret very privileged very exclusive a very luxe location it's very weird the decoration is very like well i think you said it best i think goyish is the best word mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just very mm, mm. a real a real disharmonious combination of aesthetics there's an entire wall of red glass <laughs> yeah and they're like weird chess sets everywhere like themed chess sets and like ceramic sculptures of fancy dogs 
They're very nice people for letting us stay, so we want to thank them. They're very kind people. If you listen to the pod, you know, call in. We'd love to have you on the show. Yes, yeah, we'd love to have (laughs) you on the show. So here we are in scenic Maine, Mm -hmm. bringing you more Talmudic content. This episode is going to be the start of a series. I'm thinking about calling it either Talmudic nihilism or Talmudic absurdism. I'm not sure. Someone call in and educate me on the difference between those two things, because I am a fool. But mm, yeah, Michael. Oh, sorry. That was that was agreement. Not that, uh, no, um, <laughs> with ladies. They're like, you, you don't know if you want. Uh, never mind. I'll cut that out. <laughs> Should I tell them if a butt looks bad or no? I just don't even know. You yeah. know, just go watch the game, hun. What's the game? The big game. Whatever you and the boys are watching. Oh, oh, the game. Oh, yeah, yeah, the big game. A man's place is on the couch. I was always better at the little game. <laughs> Yes, so I forgot every object in my belonging, which is a great setup for the piece of Talmud we're going to be driving into for the next, diving into for the next few weeks. But it all starts on Eruvin, Duff 13b. So this is a Talmudic tractate that I really don't know what the full theme is. Seemingly from the name, the theme is Eruv. Eruv is this sort of legal fiction that we created to allow people to carry things between places on Shabbat. Oh, yeah, like the string, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like this big wire in the air. Yeah, I really don't know much about Erovin because, well, one, I haven't read much from this Masechet before, and two, I am not orthodox. I'm Well, I don't want to say, I don't think the reason is because I'm not orthodox. I think the reason is because I'm not very strict about laws of carrying on Shabbat, so I've never had to worry about whether I lived in an Eruv or not. You're heterodox, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> I'm certainly heterodox. It's the only kind of hetero I am. So setting the stage, we're not really going to get to the absurdism itself. This is like a prequel to the absurdist debate. We're in a goyish living room in Maine. <laughs> I think that's pretty yes, absurd. It's our, it's our, we're already living absurdite. Here we are on Daf Erovin 13b, and I'll just read you some of our texts. Wakim Acher Shelu Waelu Devre Elohim Chaim Mipname Ma Zhubait Hillel Lekvua Halacha Kamotan. Basically what's been happening here is Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, who are like two big Talmudic houses that oppose each other, they've been having a debate and in the end a voice from heaven comes down and says that both these and these are the words of the living God. But the halacha is still in accordance with Beit Hillel. So basically, God came down and said, you're both right, but we're still going to do what Hillel says. Whoa, okay, what's the reason that they're going to do it? Right, so what we just read is, if these are truly both the words of the living God, Mm -hmm. why did Hillel merit to have the halacha fixed in that way? And here's the reason. Who's the other guy? Shammai. Well, he never had a sandwich named after him. <laughs> Show me the forbidden sandwich. What is the Shammai sandwich? Yeah, I would love the Shammai sandwich. I should definitely not put that in my OkCupid profile. <laughs> Give me a Shammai sandwich, baby. <laughs> okay, all right. So what's the deal? So here's the deal. It's because they were Noachin. They were like graceful comforting they had like a pleasing demeanor uh and they humbled themselves so partially it's because of who they are as people and then so they were humble and they had a good attitude and Beit Hillel didn't just teach its own teachings it also taught the teachings of Beit Shammai 
Beit Hillel is the school of Hillel. Right. Beit Shammai is the school of Shammai. When you say they, do you mean like Hillel is gender neutral or do you mean like like they meaning? They plural, like the house of Hillel. The house of Hillel. Okay, yeah, so it's exactly. like a voguing yeah, house. Yeah, it's absolutely like a ballroom house. I love it. And not only did they teach the teachings of Shammai, they taught the teachings of Shammai first before their own teachings. They prioritized the teachings of Shammai above their own teachings. Interesting. Interesting. So what are we to make of this, Hava? I can say what I think, and then yeah, you, can, you can tell me that I'm wrong. Say what you think. How Come do you feel through. about that? Yeah, I absolutely will, even if you're right. Oh, well, I'm tipsy, so that always makes me right. Yes, we're drinking margaritas. They're delicious. Mm-hmm. Michael made them. Mm-hmm. So... Hillel's not a demagogue as demagoguey. Yeah, because he was nice. I don't think it's even because he was nice. It's because like the pedagogical philosophy of his school was to be humble and kind. I this is not very inspiring for me. I'm a cat girl. I want to like beat people up. I'm sick of like the status quo. I want to like burn down precincts. Right. Uh, just kidding. Right. Well, I think there's a difference between a police precinct, which I think is not necessarily someone that I want to be involved in dialogue with, like mm-hmm. I don't want to be in the same halakhic system as them, versus Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, like they're not as opposed to each other as, for instance, you and I are to the police. Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai exist in a Talmudic ecosystem where they're both ethically upright actors so it's a bit of a false comparison when i compare like fancy elite neoliberal institution to i don't know say some other like the dsa (laughs) yes they're too far apart this is like the dsa and the iww having a debate tell us now which one would win in this case oh yeah good question DSA or IWW? I don't know DSA very well, but my instinct is that DSA is a little more Beit Hillel. The IWW, I think, tends to be a little more hardline about their stuff. DSA's got, like, your mainstream socialists, your anarchists, your, like, they got kind of everything. Yeah, and I think DSA is a little more platformist, a little more entryist. They're a little more open to electoral politics. I don't think you can be a member of the IWW if you're a career politician. Really? I think so. I'm not here to say whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying it seems to align a little more with the school of Hillel. So it sounds like God wants you to join the DSA, is what you're trying to tell me. (laughs) I am not saying that. You're welcome to make that point on your own as a Talmudic commentator. I'm not sure. All right. Send all your angry tweets at me. Yeah. Angry tweet at Michael at Misfigured. Yeah. Part of what I think is interesting about this is this really important Talmudic ideal of preserving the minority opinion. Mm -hmm. We don't just preserve whoever won the halachic debate. We actually teach the schools that disagree with how things came out in terms of practical legislation in the end, which I think is a really essential feature of Talmudic literature. In this case, we're also preserving the shame of the Beit Shammai. Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't actually thought of that. The Talmud is full of Hillel versus Shammai debates. And I never really thought of the fact that not only are we preserving the Shammai opinions, but we are also preserving the fact that Shammai got read to filth, like, constantly. What if there's like an alternate Talmud that somehow died along the process and it's all like Beit Shammai winning against Hillel? (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. And I hope it's discovered and I hope we mesh it, you know, like I hope we merge the branches. I hope it's catty as fuck. (laughs) It's really interesting that the minority opinion is preserved. And next week we're going to talk about a debate between Hillel and Shammai where they actually debate the existential merit of existence. 
Oh. Yeah. Okay. So this idea of the minority opinion being preserved, I think, will become very thematically important when we see these two diametrically opposed schools talk about whether life has meaning and worth. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> that hits too close to home. For me and maybe some of you listeners and out there, maybe too. Maybe some of you beautiful listeners out there. You are beautiful, even though everything is meaningless. Or not. Or not. <laughs> Wait till next week to find out on Hi, How Are You? That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, cool. Cool. That's good. So that's a little nugget of Talmud. I think now it's time for everybody's new favorite segment. That's right. Mike's Jewish Journey. Oh, God. Michael, what's up? Where did you start this week, Jewishly? Mm -hmm. Where did you move through and where did you end up? I feel like I started in my driveway. <laughs> it all started in the driveway. And I had a lot of like... A lot of good intention, a lot of hope, you know, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I definitely maybe got a flat tire and turned into like a rest stop and called AAA and had to get towed back. This is all metaphorical, right? Actually. Okay. Yeah, so 50, what are, 50. what are the correspondences? What were you trying to do Jewishly? I wanted to like read this book that you gave me called Everything is God. It's true. I gave Michael the book Everything is God by J. Michelson. It's like the seventh book Hava's given me and... It's the seventh book I haven't finished. It's true. He has a huge stack of my books at his house. That's right. I'm stacked, guys. Just remember that. <laughs> it's a book I quite like. Um, it seems like it's a theological struggle for you. The concepts are fairly intuitive to understand, but to actually embody them and to feel them is, is a different beast. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, this book is very about the non-dual tradition of theology within Judaism. It's both exploring what it would look like to view Judaism non-dualistically and also sort of picking out the historical pieces of a non-dual tradition within Judaism. I actually like the book. I didn't read as much as I wanted to, but I'm planning on reading more in Maine. Right. So you like the theology, but it's self-evident to you that God is everything, but it's yes. not necessarily easy to feel that reality. It's self-evident, but not self-actualizing. Especially described in someone else's words. And he makes a good point. He admits that language can't really describe God because language is this human tool that's used to demarcate objects. But if you're trying mm -hmm. to deal with the concept that there is no such thing as objects, like everything is just of the same substance. Right. Language requires separation. Exactly. And so eventually it's going to fall off the cliff when you're trying to get into things that are beyond separation. Right. That's cool. It's a cool realization to make, but it also makes it hard for you to interpret other people's metaphors. You're already having to communicate with someone, so you're not in their mind. You don't mm -hmm. have their mind. And they're using language, which is already flawed. But I like it because I come from like a mathy science background, and it seemed pretty clear the deeper you go down that rabbit hole, the more you're, wow, everything that we see is an illusion. It's a projection of our senses, which arbitrarily demarcate things. So I do appreciate that physics is leading into, it seems like, Hasidic theology. I think especially for secular people or people coming from a secular world or from a nihilistic, depressed headspace, this ties it closer to those kind of ideas that I'm more familiar with just through exposure in college and whatnot. I agree with you that it's hard to read a book about non-dualism and feel it like in your bones, feel the reality of non-dualism. The way I think of it is that reading things like that, it's sort of like 
you know, fertilizing the soil, planting the seed, watering the ground. It's all preparing so that when you're in a moment of transcendence in your real life, it makes it more likely that a direct experience of non-dualism will sprout. That's been my experience, gathering other people's metaphors and then those moments in life where I actually feel connected to the divine because I'm cool like that. Sometimes I feel connected to the divine, whatever. Hell yeah. No big deal. It's like, oh, the metaphor, it makes sense. It's almost like if you're reading a book, if you're reading like Jane Austen and you're kind of like in Jane Austen's head and you're like, oh, she's like making fun of these rich people, like (laughs) hardcore. And I can kind of relate to her even though we're hundreds of years apart. Mm -hmm. It's like that. Maybe I get what that person was trying to say metaphorically. Yeah. Away from heady theological matters, this week I think you also lit Shabbat candles. Candle. Candle. You lit Shabbat candle, which is not a usual practice for you. No. Why did you light a Shabbat candle? I wanted to try doing something that would force me to contemplate my own neurotic puttering. And to stop from doing that. So by lighting the Shabbat candle, you were sort of interrupting your routine. Yeah, I was like deep down in like a sewing rabbit hole. It's not good. It's true. He's going to do a sewing project for me this weekend. Oh, that's right. I am. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to make you a a dyke jacket. He's going to put my punk patches on the appropriate denim jacket. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you lit a Shabbat candle to break your sort of depressive routine. Was it successful in interrupting the routine at all? I don't know if I'm projecting my current state onto that, but I feel like it was successful. And this margarita is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a funny thing about spiritual practice is that you might not have felt it at that moment when you lit that Shabbat candle. You might not have been like, oh, I did it. I interrupted my depressive cycle. Mm-hmm. But later in life, later in your week, later in your month, you find yourself joyful. And I think that Shabbat candle contributed to that. It was part of the path that led you here. So it's undeniable that it led you to this moment of joy and transcendence. It also feels pretty transgressive, actually, and radical to do it. Oh, how so? Well, like I live in a waspy town. I rent like a, an apartment in like Wasp Zone 101, you know? Mm-hmm. And the landlords think I'm weird, but... Yeah, it's a marker of difference. And for me, that's nice because for so long, Shabbat candles and so many Jewish traditions were about social conformity. It's important, like, to claim the parts of ourselves that are different from the culture that we live in, I think. It's easy to not believe that there's any part of our being that is separate from this shitty world that we are often presented with this capitalistic universe. Yeah. But there are like pieces within us that we can find and claim and like help grow that are actually in opposition to it. The type of Judaism I grew up with was like, you know, reform, kind of like cultural Judaism, whatever that means. That was just very uh, assimilationist and very conforming to the the area where I lived. And this more neo-Hasidic shit feels real different, more radical. I get that. A note to listeners, no hate on all you happy reform Jews out here, but... No hate, no Just giving Michael space to talk about his negative reform experiences. I guess, like, you left the candles at home, so what are you going to do tonight? I see some candles on the dining room table right now, but I feel like we'll be fucked if we light them. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I want to light candles because it's Shavuot and Shabbat, and I'm going to trip mushrooms, and it's really important. Yeah. You know? I'm sure there's something we can light on fire. (laughs) Should we wrap it up? 
Yeah, let's wrap it. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm still grumpy, but I'm less grumpy. Recording this podcast always cheers me up. Aww. I love each and every one of you. Be on the lookout. I'm going to be announcing a new Beit Midrash that I'm teaching again with Binyakoats, friend of the show. Follow me on Twitter at Hi, how are you? Give us a five-star review on iTunes mm-hmm. and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Chava de Cordova. Mm-hmm. You are each shining stars and you illuminate the light sky of my life. All right. You ready to shroom? Yeah, let's do it. I'll tell you about it next week, listeners. Okay. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.